Well, good morning. Uh, it's really encouraging to see everybody, especially the visitors who are here this morning. Uh, it's a pretty big deal when you're willing to visit with a strange group of people, um, especially in a setting like this. It can be really intimidating. Uh, you're meeting people who already have like established relationships with each other and can easily feel like you're the odd one out. Um, but I can assure you that here we're really trying to be the kind of people that are able to reflect God's character. Um, we want to pay attention to people who might be able to be easily overlooked. And we really want to grow in the grace of God uh, very badly. Um, and we need a lot of help in doing that. And so if, if you are visiting, um, we'd be very glad to be able to get to know you better and be able to serve you in any way we can. And um, One thing that um, I think is important sometimes to really talk about, um, even if it's not related to the lesson, is how passionate we want to be about doing God's will here and doing it as it's in the Bible. Uh, a lot of people will claim that the Bible is their authority for everything they do, but oftentimes I've found that when you begin to confront somebody about something that they're doing that isn't actually in the Bible, the claim just kind of falls apart, right? And their interest in actually doing what the Bible says, you find out, was not actually real. Uh, we want to be challenged. If there's something we're doing that you have question about, please ask us about that. We'll be patient. We'll listen. Um, we don't want to turn down an opportunity to study with somebody who's seeking the truth. And we think truth does exist outside of ourselves and what we know. Um, but we do believe that truth has been designed by God to be understood, to be solid, and to be a foundation we can stand on. And so we invite you to discover God's word with us. Uh, turn your Bibles to Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. This is going to be a different kind of lesson, at least from lessons that I'm used to teaching. Um, but I think it's, it's a really important lesson. Uh, in John 17, verse 3, Jesus made a statement about eternal life. And I, I'd like to start this lesson with really a question. What is eternal life to you? Like, when you think of eternal life, how would you define that in your mind? Uh, is eternal life a place, you know, heaven, uh, where you'll have a lot of peace and security and be free of problems and worries? Uh, is eternal life the idea of being forgiven of your sins and then living a life that uh, just is doing the right kinds of things and trying not to sin, and then eventually if you've done enough right things and not sinned as much as you should or gotten forgiveness, then you'll get to go to heaven. Uh, what is eternal life to you? Like, what, what is that? And I think that's a really important question uh, to have clarified in your mind, biblically might surprise you, but in John 17, verse 3, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is actually just to know God. If we know God, we have eternal life. And if we don't know God, we don't have eternal life. This is a lesson that's really focused on just getting to know God better. And in teaching the whole counsel of God, I think it's easy to neglect lessons like this. And really think about the whole council in terms of every possible instruction, right? And we do need instruction. We need all the instruction. We need to understand doctrine correctly. But in the midst of all of those things, we can never lose sight of the fact that ultimately, ultimately, everything we are, everything we do, all gets back to really understanding and knowing God primarily. Everything we do falls under that umbrella. Uh, Peter, surprisingly, at the end of 2 Peter verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 18, you know, talking about false teaching and being on guard against false, te false teaching, his grand concluding exhortation, he says, 
grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I've, I've been struggling recently with thinking about that idea, how do, I, how do I grow in grace? How do I grow in the grace of God specifically, right? Well, again, this is a lesson really designed on that thought. How, how do we grow in grace, right? Really, the more I understand God, the more my faith will be fully formed. The more I understand the depth and the degree of God's mercies, the more internally urged I will be to present myself as a living sacrifice to God, a whole sacrifice. And I won't need somebody to feel like they've got to force that on me because within myself, just by understanding God's mercy, I'll feel compelled to do that and I'll just need help and instruction and encouragement right along the way. And the more I understand the good that God has done to me and the more I comprehend the degree and the application of that goodness, the more motivated I will be to then do good to others, right? And I'll be able to do all of those things in faith without getting worn out, without losing joy or perspective, without being demotivated or discouraged by resistance in the world or oppression by Satan, maybe even discouragement in how that's not being acted on or, or, or received on, even by brethren. If my faith is really set in God himself, then I can be fully motivated and passionate without any restraint, right? So we need to understand God's love and character better. And everything we do should draw us into that. So Isaiah 52, 13 through 15, these three verses are really going to outline the lesson. And I'd encourage you to put a marker there because we'll be looking at other scriptures to shed more light on some of these statements. Uh, But I read this um, a little while ago. I think it was last year, sometime later in the year. And the way that I looked at this passage um, changed a little bit in a way that has impacted me uh, a lot. And so I hope that this will impact you in the same way. So let's just read these three verses here in Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will, be highly, he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see and what they had not heard they will understand. So it seems pretty straightforward, right? And there's a lot of affirmations that are made here, a lot of commitments in a sense that God is making. But really I want to start with who's this talking about? Uh, And obviously you may read this and you may immediately think like, well, I mean, it's talking about Jesus. I mean, obviously it's talking about Jesus. But you know, if you were reading this in Isaiah's time, this would, that would not have been the most obvious thing. And even in the context of Isaiah, it's kind of mysterious who this servant is that's being talked about. Uh, so I'd, I kind of want to put ourselves there. And mind you, this was, this was spoken seven, eight hundred years before Jesus ever came into the world. Uh, so really, this, this was not the most clear thing in the eyes of the people that this was spoken to. Uh, but this idea of the servant, go back to chapter 41. Chapter 41. Uh, I'll tell you as we're going into this first point, and I'll step back a little bit here. The title of this lesson is God's Relentless Redeeming Love. That's the title of the lesson. God's Relentless Redeeming Love. And this first point is how we're redeemed by God's passion. So the lesson is God's Relentless Redeeming Love. And this first point, just verse 13, how are we redeemed by God's passion? And how we see that is God mingles in Isaiah, at the end of Isaiah here. He starts in chapter 41 talking about his servant. And it becomes 
actually the subject of everything Isaiah is saving. It's all, it's all about his servant. Well, the servant is both Israel and this one person who somehow will embody Israel as a nation. I want to show you this strange intermingling here. So 41 verse 8, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from the remotest parts, and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not rejected you. So there, that's where we refer there. Israel there, the nation Israel, is being referred to as the servant. But if you look at chapter 42, which might be in the same opening in your Bible, chapter 42, verse 1, he says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. That's quoted in Matthew in his reference to Jesus. So in chapter 41, you have Israel, the nation, as the servant. And then in chapter 42, you have this him, this mysterious one person who uh, really embody the glory of the nation and the mission of the nation. But it's just like one person that God is using. Well, if you go forward to chapter 44, verse 1, might be just a page or two forward. He says, But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So here again, he went from, in chapter 42, Israel is this one him person, so now in chapter 44, he's going back to how Israel is again the nation, right? We'll go to chapter 49. Uh, by the time you get to chapter 49, the servant transitions into entirely really being this one. But in chapter 49, the language you'll see really clearly mingles the idea of the servant being both not only the nation, but at the same time as embodying this nation, it's also this him figure. Uh, chapter 49, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. It says, Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. And he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be a servant, which is what, by the way, was just said about the nation of Israel, says to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also make you a light to the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth, which in chapter 52 is verse 15, the idea of many nations being sprinkled. Uh, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see and arise. Princes also will will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen chosen you. First thing about these commitments that God makes and this idea of this servant, those commitments mean more in chapter 52, verse 13, the more we understand was working against them. And that's something that helped me recently when I was reading those things that God said. When he talked about his servant will be prosperous. 
His servant will be high and lifted up. He will be exalted. The idea is God is saying that in light of everything that should contradict those things from being true. The greater the powers are that resist those affirmations, the more we can understand the sense of passion and desperation in God's commitment to do those things, despite not only everything resisting those commitments, but everything that gives him a reason to pull back and choose to give up on his vows for his people. Right? The idea of his servant being intermingled with Israel is Israel was created for a purpose. So just like God said with Israel, he fashioned them from the womb to be his servant. Israel's mission was ultimately what this other servant's mission eventually was. To show God's glory to the world, to reveal God's redemptive love, to draw people to the glory of God. But let me ask you this. Did Israel succeed in that? Like the mission that God created Israel for, did they ever really succeed in that? And they never did. They never succeeded. In fact, Israel itself ended up needing to be redeemed by God. So God's own people, who were supposed to go on this mission to fulfill it, had catastrophically failed. To the point where, even if you look back at 49 verse 4, the Messiah speaking here says, I have toiled in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing. And yet the servant would be prosperous. How would the servant be prosperous? So the servant is the one fulfilling God's mission. If it's not Israel, it's the Messiah. How would he be prosperous? What does that mean? Look at verse 7. How is God named here? The Redeemer of Israel. You know somebody's prosperity oftentimes by the things they're able to buy. <laughs> so like if you go into someone's house and you, like, you see the things that they, they own, like maybe it's expensive utensils, maybe it's expensive chinaware, Maybe it's expensive furniture. Maybe the house is just gargantuan, right? You've got a lot of unnecessary things, paintings on the walls. Just by what, what they purchase, you can kind of get an idea of just the kind of income that they're making, right? The thing is, God buys the most expensive things. And Jesus was going to need a prosperity that would equip him to be able to purchase things that money can't actually buy. Go back to Psalm 49. Psalm was a little bit before Isaiah. Psalm 49. Psalm 49, verses 5 through 9. Psalm 49, verses 5 through 9. <clears throat> it's a really interesting psalm. The psalmists understand redemption really, really well because the culture of Israel was designed to bring to reality the price God pays to redeem people. And so the faithful people who wrote the psalms, they understood these concepts very well. So look at verse 5. Why should I fear in the days of adversity? when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me, even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. So the psalmist says, if somebody wanted to redeem their life, to go into eternity, It's impossible. There's, there's, just, there's no amount of money you could ever save up or ever pay that could possibly ever ransom somebody's life in God's eyes. Right? So the thing is, I'm going to come back to this at the last point when we get to verse 15. What would you pay for somebody's life? What, what would you calculate? 
Think of the, the most valuable person in your life. Like, I'm not talking about even money. Like, what would you pay, you think, for somebody's life to be purchased? What, what amount of money? Thing is, we are so expensive and yet so worthless. It took God ages upon eternity to get to the point of revealing the kind of value that he places upon each individual life. So much so that with Israel as a nation, what we'll see as we continue through the thread of this lesson, it took God until thousands of years into his creation to get to the point where we could really understand how much he's willing to actually pay to buy us eternally and to redeem us. Uh, Look at John chapter 12. John chapter 12. This is the idea of being high and lifted up and exalted. So God also said he'd be high, lifted, exalted. This is just kind of putting down the, the foundation of the lesson and putting things really on top of each other as we move forward. Uh, John chapter 12. So Jesus in verse 23, he's getting close to his crucifixion. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Look at verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sake. Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Stop there. So God's servant would be exalted. and Jesus almost quotes that here, saying that he will be lifted up. And when he's lifted up, he's going to draw everyone to God. What does he mean by that? You know, I would think looking back on things, he would be talking about the resurrection, but look at verse 33. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Because it's not the resurrection that really shows the price God is willing to pay. It shows the exaltation God gives. But it's his death, it's the display of the kind of death he died that shows how far God is willing to go to pay for our lives and to purchase us. He would be prosperous. God would equip Jesus with the resources he would need to prove to us and to persuade us without even knowing God that he is a God who loves us to a degree that is evident in how much he spends to win us, to buy us, to get us into his house as his, possessive, as his personal treasured possession. When I was, when I was younger, um, when I was like four years old, uh, I had like a magazine with a Game Boy picture in it and Donkey Kong, and I would carry this around with me obsessively everywhere I went. I literally would not leave the house without this magazine and the picture of the Game Boy. I was a very covetous child. So I would carry this with me everywhere, and my parents would give me this allowance. And it was like a dollar a week or something like that. And this Game Boy was like $100. And I got this Game Boy with Donkey Kong, right? And I, I treasured this thing when I got it. But I, I needed the picture in front of me to motivate me. And I, I was obsessed with it. But like... The time it took to save up and all that didn't matter to me because I wanted it so badly, right? And that's the thing is, when we understand the pain God endures, the span of time he endured in order to reveal all of these things, 
the more valuable we can understand we are as an asset to him when we understand how obsessively motivated he needed to remain with all of the suffering and enduring he had to go through to get to us as we are today, right? So chapter 52, verse 14. Chapter 52, verse 14 of Isaiah. Go back to Isaiah uh, 52. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man in his form, more than the sons of men. So we start building on this foundation of God making these commitments. And so many things are working against these affirmations, but what did it really take for God to do these things with his servant? So as many were as were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man. In Leviticus 22, I'm not going to turn there, but just as a side point, in Leviticus 22, the same Hebrew word for marred, M-A-R-R-E-D, is used for sacrifices that were disfigured. That's the same Hebrew word, disfigured. And they couldn't be offered because of being disfigured. Like if their leg was short or they had like scabs and disease, they couldn't be brought to God because they were defective, right? So it's the idea of something's appearance having some kind of disfiguration. So he's saying that his appearance would be more disfigured, more unrecognizable, more, more uh, tainted than any other person's appearance could possibly be. But there's a comparison made in verse 14. It would be similar to how God's own people, how their appearance was disfigured as well. Start with Ezekiel chapter 1. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel is two books past Isaiah. Uh, one of the other prophets that spoke to Israel like, Ezekiel, like uh, Isaiah did. In Ezekiel chapter 1, 26 through 28, I want to think about this comparatively, right? There's a lot of people who have had their appearances pretty disfigured. And like, not, not to get too gross, but I mean, some people, if they suffer certain incidents when they die, like you literally can't recognize them, right? if there's even sometimes a body to be recognized. So people's appearances can get pretty messed up. And obviously Jesus, when he was on the cross, he still had a bodily form. So it's not like he blew up in a bomb or something like that, right? So we have to understand what, what is this meaning? And I think we're thinking more comparatively in this context. 26 through 28 of Ezekiel 1. Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. That I noticed from his appearance of his loins and upward something like glowing metal uh, that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward I saw something like fire and there was radiance all around him. As the appearance of the rainbow and the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. In Exodus 33, when Moses wants to see God, God tells him that no man can see me and live. Notice at the end of this in verse 28, did Ezekiel really see the true appearance of God's glory? It says that he saw the appearance, so there's one filter, of the likeness, there's the second filter, of the glory, there's the third filter, of the Lord. So he's seeing through one, two, three filters this kind of somewhat semblance of the glory of God. And even in that, how does he respond? Falls on his face like a dead man. That's the normal reaction you see when somebody is confronted with even a deeply filtered glimpse of the threat of the glory of God. They fall on their face and they can't, they can't hardly comprehend 
or tolerate what they see without losing control of themselves and falling to the ground. Um, so when we're thinking comparatively, how glorious can someone get in this world? I mean, how, how much can somebody adorn their appearance? How great can someone really be? And when you're thinking comparatively, how, how, how far can somebody really humble themselves? How, how deeply can somebody's appearance be disfigured? Think about it this way. Is it really strange for a sinner to have their appearance resemble a sinner's form? Right? You think, do we have a right as sinners to a glorious form or image? We have no right to those things. So it's really, it's really not so strange for a sinner who's fallen short of the glory of God to have an appearance consistent with that defective nature. But when we're talking about God, who is holy, 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 high and exalted above the seraphim, with none who are higher than him, a God whose glory is so radiant, so intimidating, that to even see him in that radiance from a distance is overwhelming. For him to take the form of a man and then allow that form to be taken hold of by his enemies, to then be slowly tortured, to be spat upon, to be slapped, to be reviled, to not be recognized and the whole time to maintain passion and love for them is unthinkable. Turn to Lamentations, uh, chapter 3. Lamentations is uh, after Jeremiah. It's just before Ezekiel, if you're still there in your Bible. Uh, Lamentations, chapter 4. God also comparatively related Jesus' uh, transformation, in a sense, his marring of his appearances. It was going to be like how people were astonished at his own people. And something that is easy to miss in the history of Israel is that Babylon completely decimated Jerusalem at one point because of their sin. Lamentations was written by the only prophet who is present within Jerusalem while all of this would have happened. And in Lamentations chapter 4, he talks about the marring of God's people and, and, and how far they had fallen from at once an image that they had that was glorious. Look at Lamentations chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 12. This is again, Jeremiah is lamenting over the condition of God's people as the city had been destroyed. How dark the gold has become, how the pure gold has changed. The sacred stones are poured out at the corner of every street. The precious sons of Zion weighed against fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen jars, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the infant cleaves to the roof of its mouth because of thirst. The little ones ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. Those who ate delicacies are desolate in the streets. Those reared in purple embrace ash pits. For the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown as in a moment, and no hands were turned toward her. Her consecrated ones were purer than snow. They were whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than corals. Their polishing was like lapis lazuli. Their appearance is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It is withered. It has become like wood. Better are those slain with the sword than those slain with hunger, for they pine away being stricken, for lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women boiled their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord has accomplished his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger. 
and he has kindled a fire in Zion which has consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any, any of the inhabitant, inhabitants of the world, uh, that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who have shed in her midst the blood of the righteous. So notice in verse 12, the kings of the earth nor any inhabitant did not believe that anybody could have entered into Jerusalem. You see the condition that Israel was in when they were laid desolate by the wrath of God. They were transformed from being the most glorious, prosperous nation, people who were holy in their behavior and conduct, who were reared in purple, who had wisdom like Solomon, to becoming people who were black as soot, with women boiling and eating their own children because of the desolation and madness that was in that city when it was desolated. And God, allowing these things to judge his people, would not allow it without in his mind reserving in himself that he would undergo the same suffering taken further for the sake of redeeming people out of a condition that brings them into this destiny. So God would allow his glory to be laid low, cast to the earth. That the God who is higher than the heavens would not only come to the earth but put himself in the lowest possible position sharing in all the afflictions of his people. Think about the TV show uh, Undercover Boss. I don't think that's on TV anymore. But it was, it was kind of a, a show that made for good entertainment because a CEO would go to like the most menial position of his job or his business and he would check on how people in those menial positions were doing and he would work with them, find people with like a good story and then reward them in some way when he would find out that they were doing the job well, make corrections and find out things weren't doing done well. And like the, the big thing with that show that was entertaining is you have somebody who's a CEO jokingly really dressing himself and, and covering over his appearance to not be recognized to fit in with the most common of his people, right? And of course, it's not, it's not a lasting thing. It's just entertainment, right? But the idea of why that show could be successful is because that's just not something a CEO would do, right? That's not normal that he would do something like that. But as entertaining as that is, God does something so much greater. He doesn't just come down to us. He goes beneath even the most menial to take the lowest position and suffer more than anybody could to bring us higher into his position. He comes down to us to bring us to him. Right? So he needed to allow his condition to be completely desolated, overlooked in order to redeem us it required the spending of all the resources of his glory. Remember in Isaiah 49 that God said, uh, the Messiah said, I have spent my strength for nothing. God would purposely organize times in the crucifixion of his son to make sure that it was as trying, as difficult, as impossible as it possibly could be in order to reveal the great depths of the love and price that he would pay to call us by the glory of his grace. So go back to chapter 52, verse 15. Chapter 52, verse 15. So then saying, Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what had not been heard, they will understand. Uh, he will sprinkle many nations. Again, in Leviticus, that idea of sprinkling is a word that's used in relation to the sprinkling of blood from the sacrifices onto people and on the tabernacle, the idea of redeeming, redeeming by blood to make atonement for sin is the idea. 
Uh, and if you go to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, <clears throat> thinking about again like the idea that God redeems us but this third point with uh, verse 15 is the idea that we're redeemed by God's wealth uh, but there are certain things that we understand again exceed monetary price right so God pays the highest possible price look at 1 Peter chapter 1 17 through 21 if you address the Father as the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. He would sprinkle many nations. Notice in verse 20, this is one of the big twists of God's work with the world in redeeming the world. Who is this all for? So if somebody was a Jew, in, in their mind in Jesus' time, everything that God was doing was still just for them. And even when the Gentiles began to be redeemed and saved, a popular doctrine that was being circulated in the first century was that you had to be circumcised still and keep the law of Moses in order to really be a part of God's family. But look at, look at verse uh, 20 again. Who did Jesus appear for? It's you. It's you and me. Peter is appealing to the reader, any reader, not just the audience that he's writing to in the immediacy of the letter, it's for you. You know what God was really doing through all the history of his nation and how Israel and Jesus share glory, how Jesus came to reveal the glory of Israel? Why was Jesus' blood so valuable? When you make investments in something, you're trying to make it as valuable as you possibly can so that when you redeem it, when you pull out, you're getting as much as you possibly can. The great mystery that Jesus revealed, everything he had done with Israel, everything God had done with Israel, for thousands of years, planning from all eternity forward to get to the cross, that God had invested in Israel for millennium so that Jesus could come and reveal that all of that work, all of that suffering, Abraham, David, all of the prophets, it was all for any individual who could understand and believe in the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus' blood is not just his own life. It's what is his life. That God had invested in Israel for all that time to teach you about his love. To teach you about how much he values you. That he's willing to let go of all of those assets. And he's willing to forsake everything that he had done with his nation for all of those years and all the investments, all the promises, so that you, not having to do anything, could get all the riches of all of those things through his own suffering. Turn to Romans chapter 9. There's actually a really important point uh, that Paul makes in the Roman letter in relation to God's love not only for Israel and keeping his commitments for that nation, but how Jesus revealed that that love... Uh, 
exceeds that nation and into the Gentiles all the same, if not more. Look at chapter 9, uh, verse 22 through 24. It says, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make known his power, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. So kings would shut their mouths on account of him. What they had not heard, they will see. What they had not, or what they had not heard, they would hear. And what they had not seen, they would see. And they would understand. What king had ever been willing to invest so much into his own nation? And then at a point when his nation was most hostile against him, would give his single heir to the throne to be tortured and publicly crucified just in hope to not only win them, but then to bring anyone and everyone else into his nation and into his rule. Where has love like that ever been heard or ever been seen? Folks, when we read the Old Testament, we're reading about God trying to teach us about the quality of his glory and his covenant that's made for individual people. God's love for individuals. God's love for redeeming individuals. To God, the greatest burden is not the price he pays through his son. It's when all that he does to redeem is overlooked and he cannot then bear the burdens of others through all the suffering that he undergoes. Look at chapter 11 as well of Romans. Chapter 11, verse 11 and 12. Does I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? And there he's speaking of Israel. May it never be, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Just imagine. Let's say you had a TV playing in the background of something you were doing and you just hear that Bill Gates has sold all of his assets sold his company, everything involved in his company, and shortly after that, there he is. Knocks on the door, comes in where you are, and he starts talking to you. And he tells you that all of that, all of his assets, everything he's accumulated in his life, all the success he's had, has actually been all for you the whole time. You know, and you're flabbergasted, you don't believe it, you tell him to stop messing with you, but then he brings out paperwork, and he starts showing you on the paperwork your name, the whole way. Now, he had anticipated that this would be hard to believe. He anticipated that this would be unfathomable, that somebody would be willing to do something like this. But there it is, in contractual writing, that the whole time, he was doing it all for you. Would you accept that? Would you consider that to be a great act of unbelievable kindness? But I mean, ultimately, what does that really do for you, right? What does that really do for you? You know, and you'd feel eternally grateful to somebody like that. And you imagine the poorer you are, the less people who care about you, the more that that would matter. The more you've suffered in your life, the more you've been oppressed, the more value you'd place on that act of kindness. You know, sometimes you can get so lost in faith thinking about, well, what do I have to do with this? What's the application? What do I have to do? And that's a great thought. But you know, sometimes, sometimes... We just really need to understand. We just really need to comprehend. 
Because if somebody really understands what God has done and what he's offering, they will never be the same. Never. And they'll want to do anything that God says. Anything. Because they'll know him. And the knowledge of God and his grace will lead them and teach them to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, but to, but to live righteously and soberly in the present age hastening and welcoming the coming of his son. Why is the gospel good news? Is it just a side comfort to our lives? Is it just that we can be forgiven and live a cleaner, more fulfilling life? Is it that we can have a community of friendly people to have a good social relationship with and receive a lot of comfort from? Those are all good things, but that's not, that's not really the gospel. The gospel is good news because God who created everything, who is higher than everything, sent his son at the end of all his investment in Israel to sell out the assets of that nation to say, this is all for you, all of it. I was doing that the whole time just to show you that I desperately want to be your father. I want to deliver you. I want to invest in your life. I'll comfort you. And our lives, folks, are so messed up we understand that how could God possibly have the kind of commitment and assets to help me? And God puts it all on the table and says, I've shown you. I have the commitment. I have the assets. I have everything that's needed to redeem you and to give you hope. I'll do it if you'll just believe. God is committed to transforming us. And if we know God, we're left aghast and just to say, how can I call that God my father? What do I have to do to be a part of this Israel? Because when Jesus was sent, not only did he glorify the father, but the defamed name of Israel was brought high to where we would not want to just attach ourselves to the name of God, but let me have the name Israel. Let me be a part of this nation that's been so blessed and focused on by the great compassions of God. The invitation will be Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. If you really want to know God, here's one of the most important truths about who he is. This nation that rejected God gave him no opportunity to really have the compassion on them that he desired to glorify them as he wished to. At their worst, here's what he says to them. Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those who long for him. God longs to be gracious to you. Let's imitate God as dear children. Let's know his love, and let's seek him as he sought us. If there's anything that we can do for you if you need to obey the gospel, Now is the time to do those things as we sing.